When you're put off by the messenger, it can be easy to ignore the message. Right? That's understandable. When, you're, when you've been put off by the messenger, it's, it's easy to ignore the message. But let me ask you, does that then necessarily mean that you should ignore the message? Uh, maybe that message is worth hearing still. Let me give you an example. A doctor with a poor bedside manner. All right. Let's say you know, you know that your condition is dire and you are in desperate need of some kind of treatment. But the doctor comes to you and relays this message in an unfeeling, uncaring, condescending, arrogant sort of manner. Does that then mean you should ignore what it is that he had to say? Granted, granted, the way he delivered it was poor, but does that then mean that you should just jettison, ignore, and reject what it is that he had to say? The, the reason I bring this up in this, this paradigm uh, up is... I fear that on the, when it comes to the topic of repentance, that's the way many of us react. After all, what is the, the packaging that typically in which we, we have heard that kind of message, right? A fire and brimstone kind of preacher on television shaking the, the podium and you know all kinds of other craziness. And may, maybe in a public square, you know, at Austin P or Ohio State or or wherever, you know, just screaming. Is it possible that we've been maybe offended by the messenger and are a little too quick, though, to reject the message? Is, is, is it possible that what's going on there is, is a caricature? You know what I mean? A, car a, a, a comical um, exaggeration of something that actually has some truth and legitimacy. I think it's quite possible. If you have your Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 3. We are pressing on now a little further into our study here in the Gospel of, of Matthew. So uh, go ahead and find it, uh, and, I'll, and I'll help you. It's the first book of the New Testament. It's the first of the four Gospels uh, that we have, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. Uh, so we're in, in Matthew's Gospel, we're in Matthew chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. So Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Follow along silently with me in your Bible. Now, hear now God's holy word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me 
is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Would you pray with me? Lord, in the words of the psalmist, we ask, we share in this prayer now, asking that you would deal bountifully with us that we might live and keep your word. We ask that you would open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things out of your law. We are sojourners on earth. Hide not your commandments from us. Help us see and hear what those witnesses there that day, uh, there on the banks of the Jordan, were seeing and hearing. In that place, in that time, and help us to live accordingly and respond as, as you intend for us to do. We ask these things in your name and according to your good pleasure. Amen. Great happenings demand great hearing. Great happenings demand great hearing. I haven't seen the movie. I don't even know if I'm planning to. You know, San Andreas just hit the uh, the movie theaters this this past weekend, and and I don't know much about the plot, so I can't give you a plot spoiler. But I can tell you basically it has to do, of course, with a big earthquake in California, and the basic message of the film is the big one is coming. Get a moving. Okay, here's something a little bit more everyday, a little bit more commonplace. So, young wife comes back from doctor's appointment, says to young husband, we're expecting, it's a different earthquake, we're expecting, get ready. Great happenings demand a great hearing. It's like that with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, this is an incredibly dramatic scene, what we have just uh, read here, what's unfolding here. It's about, when you think about it, 30 years. There's a 30-year gap between the end of Matthew 2 and the beginning of Matthew 3. More than that, there's a 400-year gap between John the Baptist arriving on the scene as a prophet of the living God. It's been about 400 years since the last time that happened, a true prophet of the living God coming to his people there in Israel. He comes forth as, as an Elijah-like figure, not just because of his appearance, and that was, of course, unique, but, but as a fulfillment to the prophecies, he is, is declaring this bold, courageous message. Uh, he, is, he is preparing the people for this one who is coming, who is equated, I don't know if you noticed this, but he is equated, Jesus, the coming one, is equated with the Lord. Make ready for him. Um, he's coming and he's preaching where? In a cathedral, right? No, in, in the wilderness, the wilderness of Judea, which, by the way, just so you know, get an understanding of what that's like physically. It's not like, you know, a National Park Service greenery like we're accustomed to when we think in this part of the world, wilderness. No, that part of the world, wilderness of Judea, is dry, it is barren, it is treacherous, it is arid, it is mountainous. That is the, the, the wilderness. But by the way, this is not just a geographical reference. There's also a sense in which it's a theological reference because it's hearkening back to Israel's history when they spent time in the wilderness in preparation for coming into something new 
the promised land and there's just a freight train of, you know, here's John in the wilderness preaching, oh, and what's his message? Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, God's reign breaking into God's world. The reclamation of all things from the usurper. Uh, the, the redemption, the buying out of the, from the slave market at the high cost of the blood of well, the Redeemer himself. The promise and the outworking of that promise to make all things new. It's the coming of the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is John's message. You see him just in the next chapter. Chapter 4, it's Jesus' message as well. It's the essence of what those two figures were proclaiming. John is but setting the stage for this greater one to come. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about what the kingdom of heaven, that message is really about in the coming weeks when we get to Matthew 4. But for today, I want to drill down here the response. The response that's called for. Again, great happenings demand a great hearing, okay? That's the principle. Here's the happening. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we are called then to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therein comes this call to repentance. Now, we're going to look at that and, and unpack that in two ways, asking two questions. First, what does this call to repentance mean? What does John mean when he says that, that's the, that's the first thing I want to look at. And the second thing is a follow-up. Who needs to hear it? Who is that applicable to? So, those two things. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, we are called to repent. All right, firstly, what does it mean? Let's think in terms of a definition of, of repentance. It, uh, please understand, this is not a, just a, a partway kind of, of deal. It, it's not just an intellectual thing. where It's a changing of the mind and the way you're thinking about something. It's not just that. Nor is it just an emotional thing about your feelings and about feeling badly, poorly about something you did or that you, that you said. It's, that's, it's, that's not going far enough with a biblical definition of repentance. It actually, it's, it's not part way. It involves the whole person. The whole person. It's a radical transformation of the whole person, a fundamental turning, yes, of the way you're thinking, yes, of the way that you're feeling, that impels you, that drives you to new action, to new living. That's a biblical understanding of what repentance looks like, which then takes us to the next thing. What, is it, well, what does it look like? What are the marks of repentance? And, and, and our text is actually quite helpful in, in giving us some clues here as to the marks of what, what are the signs of it. Let me read verses 4 through 6 again. Now, John wore... Now, by the way, John's garments not, are not necessarily a mark of repentance, just, just so you know. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt round his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So, what is what, certainly one of the marks that we see here of true biblical repentance is a confession of sin which begins at least bare bones with acknowledging our sin. Not, not hiding from it, not covering it, not playing it down. Oh, I made a mistake. Um, 
I'm sorry if I offended you. That's sort of a ridiculous thing. But rather owning it. Owning it. You know, recognizing the ways in which, and mourning, grieving for the ways in which you have um, fallen so far woefully short of the first and second greatest commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Grieving for that. Acknowledging that and owning that. And I would just go a little further and say not just acknowledging it, but despising it. Hating it. It's one of the reasons I, I, I had, uh, and Roger read this a little while ago, from 2 Corinthians. It, it's, not, it's not a worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, you understand, is, is you're sorry about the way it's, what you've done has affected you. You got caught. You got busted. And now you're upset about the cost that's going to come with being caught. You're dealing with, you know you're going to have to deal with a guilty conscience. Oh, woe is you. That's not enough. You're, you're, you're upset about how this has brought a, a, a rift between you and another person. That's not enough. You're, you're, you're you know, scandalized because possibly of the financial cost that this is going to bring. That is not enough. That is all worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow takes those things and leaps far beyond those things to grieving as to how you have grieved the Lord and mourning as to the harm that you have caused other people. That is godly sorrow. So there's an acknowledgement of sin. There is a despising of our sin. All of that comes with a confession of sin. But it's not just words. It's also a change of life. And that's reflected here too. And you see it in the call to baptism. Baptism, which of course is, is a declaration of my need to be cleansed, to be washed from the filth, the stain of my sin. That's what's going on here. And, and by the way, I should point out just real quickly, what John is calling for here is something brand new. Brand new. I mean, it's, it's never been like this before. In, in the centuries leading up to this point, it was Gentile converts to Judaism. It was non-Jews who were becoming, you know, acclimating themselves to the Jewish faith, converging. And they were then called, among other things, to go through a ceremonial washing. But John, you understand, is calling for the Jewish people, God's chosen people, also to go through this ceremony of washing, making this declaration to the world of their need for cleansing. This is something brand new. It's dramatic, what he's, what he's doing, calling forth here. So, but it's not just a declaration, though. Not just a declaration of need, but also, I would, just to play with some alliteration, a demonstration, not just a declaration, but a demonstration in your life. Pick up where we left off, verses 7 through 8. The fruit of repentance. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Yeah, obviously, dead trees do not bear fruit, but live trees should. And that's what is being called for. Here, the fruit of these words, not just declaring something, but demonstrating something. And I should point out here one other thing, and that's it's not just a once-for-all thing, this repentance. 
but an ongoing thing, a, a lifestyle of repentance, a posture every day of humble repentance. And the longer you stay in that lifestyle, the further you go in it, the more you realize your need for it. Some of you have heard me tell this, this story before, but I'm going to set it up this way. What would you say are the marks of spiritual maturity? Spiritual vibrancy, right? Here's some soft, easy ones, right? Regular time in the Bible, absolutely, may it be. Regular time given to prayer, absolutely. Investing yourself in other people in a sacrificial way, yes. Generous, open-handed giving, absolutely. How about a lifestyle of repentance? That, too, is a mark of spiritual maturity. Here's my story. Dr. David Jones, seminary professor, Covenant Seminary, uh, one of the most godly, wise men I have known in my whole life. I'll never forget him standing up before these uh, students, these seminary students, including me, sitting there in the seats, and him explaining something of this very thing, this paradox of growth in the Christian life. On the one hand, as you grow in the Christian life, you're becoming more and more like Christ, set free from your enslavement to sin. But yet at the same time, almost in tension with that, as you're growing in Christ's likeness, you realize how unlike Christ you are. As you understand, as you're growing to be more and more like Jesus, you're growing in how little you are like Jesus. Whereas before, as an immature believer, you thought you were God's gift to the world. But the more mature you get, you realize that ain't so. And the man stood there before us with tears running down his cheeks as he began to reflect on his own life of regret and things that he had failed to be and to do and yet was so comforted by our great Savior and his security, our security in him. That's what a lifestyle of repentance looks like. Of course, it does uh, assume something, doesn't it? It assumes that we're open to the possibility that maybe we need to repent. It assumes that maybe it's just possible that there could be some areas in my life and in your life and our lives where we've gone off course and need to turn. It assumes that we're open to that. It also demands some things of us. It demands that we have a willingness to examine ourselves. Um, to examine, can I put it this way, our blind spots. If you keep your thumb here in Matthew 3, go with me to Luke 3. In Luke's account of these very events, uh, Luke records for us some spe a specific conversation that John has with some, some folks who come up to him asking him about this very thing. What would this look like, repentance? What would it look like for me? And in Luke chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, we read these words. Luke 3, verses 12 through 14. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, 
And we, what should we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Let me explain what's going on here. John is, is challenging the tax collectors and the soldiers who are coming to him asking him, you know, in essence, what would it look like for me to live a life of repentance? He's telling them, you need to forsake and turn from the sins common to your trade. Okay, take that and ask yourself, what are the sins common to my trade? Now you got to expand for all of us, you know, what that would that that looks like. Um, what what in, in in your calling in your everyday life? What are the assumptions, the unexamined assumptions that govern your days? What are the things that that you haven't even thought about, the behavior patterns in your life you haven't even begun to examine and think through and second guess and question because you're so used to justifying it by well everyone else does that. Subordinates like to snipe on their superiors. There's one. Students whatever age, will do just enough to get by. Parents will do anything for our kids' approval. We all just want to be served. My friends, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need to repent of such things. And, and, and beyond examining though our blind spots, we're being called here to seek Christ's help in that, that very exercise. Because it's a funny thing, you know, to, to be told, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? There's a little tension in that. I don't know if you thought about it. Because on the one hand, we're being told to do something, bear fruit. But on the other hand, you can't do that without help, by definition. Right? Ask Him. Grant what you've commanded, O Lord. Help me. Help me to examine my blind spots. Help me to, to own these things, to mourn these things, to turn from these things, that I might bear fruit. Lord, you've got to help me. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need to repent of such things. Okay, well, that's something of, of what it means, this call for repentance. It does beg a question, though, and this is part two. Who needs to hear the call? Uh, who needs to hear this? And it's interesting, again, our text points us in the direction here, so back to Matthew 3. We're out of Luke now, back to Matthew. There are two groups of people. Two groups of people on hand there coming to John. They're on the banks of the Jordan, the wilderness of Judea. Again, let me read verses 5 through 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This, this, this is uh, the people who know. Who, 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 what are the two groups? One group is it's a group of people who know they need to hear this call, and they're responding accordingly. Now, just, just to be clear, Matthew is not saying literally everyone in the region was coming. That is, it's a, it's a figure of speech. It's rather masses 
from all over the region were coming there to that place. The news, you see, was spreading. The word was spreading. The Spirit of God was at work. It's something of a revival, frankly. And, and while to be sure, there's much confusion on what John means when he uses the language, the kingdom of heaven. Nonetheless, think with me, is repentance a popular message? Does it really win a, a hearing or win a following? No, but people by the hundreds and hundreds are thronging, coming to hear this man and responding in a heartfelt manner. So that's group number one. Those who know they need to hear this call and are responding accordingly. But then there's a second group, and that is those who don't. Who don't know and don't really respond in the right way, and that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we read about here in uh, verses 7 and following. Um, who are they? Well, just to make it simple, I cheated. I copied this out of the ESV study Bible. So, just going to make it simple for you. Maybe some of you have that in your laps right, right now. So, who are the Pharisees? All right? Good definition. A layman's fellowship, popular with the common people, and connected to local synagogues, chiefly characterized by adherence to extensive extra-biblical traditions, which they rigorously obeyed as a means of applying the law to daily life. Pharisees. Sadducees, second group. A small group, smaller, who derived their authority from the activities of the temple. They were removed from the common people by aristocratic and priestly influence, as well as by their cooperation with Rome's rule. Okay, so let me just now... Here's Richard's study Bible. These are the religious elite. Okay? Now, why are the religious elite mingling with this rabble? Well, they are likely there as representatives of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council of the day, to check out what in the world is going on. And John then has some interesting things to say to them. I'll read that again, verses 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, I'm glad you're here. Sign up for the movement. You brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John, please understand, John is not the guy that you invite to your fundraising dinner. He says what's on his mind. He says what's on his heart. He says what, even more importantly, what's on God's heart. Um... You know what, see how he describes these people as a brood of vipers. What the? What is that? The offspring of venomous snakes. That's what he's saying. That's what you are. Now, I just learned this in some commentators on, on the culture of the ancient Near East. I was reading about this this past week. What he's referring to is this. There was a belief in the ancient world that there was a type of venomous snake that would eat its way out from the inside of its mother. And that's how it would come to be born into the world. 
And we, of course, know that's not quite true, but that was the belief at, at the time of a brood of vipers. And that's the image that John is applying now to the religious elite, which, of course, it, what, what is he saying? It's bad enough. You're not just as subtle and crafty and deceitful and dangerous as a venomous snake. You ate the insides of your mother. It's the worst kind of thing that he could possibly say to these people. And why? Why does he say this to them? Because he recognizes that they feel safe and secure because of their blood tie to Abraham. They think that they are a chosen people. If I can play with the word here. They think that they are a chosen people because they are a choice people. Totally misreading their history and God's clearly expressed intentions and purposes for them. They find them, they are safe and secure in themselves, in their heritage, in their lineage, in their record, in their accomplishments, in their righteousness, in what they bring to the table. And they are feeling very safe, secure, and I would add smug in that. And so John then speaks to them very directly. Very directly. In essence, saying with urgency, you can't see it. You have eyes but cannot see. You can't see that just like these, this rabble that you look down on, that you disdain, that you too, you too need to be washed. You too need to repent. But you can't see. They, they, yes, they need to repent and turn from their unrighteousness. You. You need to repent and turn and be washed from the filth and the stain of your righteousness. But you can't see. So, in answer to the question, who needs to repent? We all do. We all do. I have family that live um, in... Uh, Bedford, Virginia. There's a story that they have told me uh, that, that is, brings this idea to mind. It is, it's a dreadful thing to be lost and not know it. It's a terrible, it's a terrifying thing to be sure of one's destination and the path that you're on and not know that you're actually in deep, deep darkness. So my family that lives there in, in Bedford lives within sight of the Peaks of Otter and Sharpton Mountain where lie the remains of a B-25 bomber that crashed into that mountainside in February of 1943. Uh, it was supposed to be just a normal, normal for the time, cross-country nighttime navigation mission. And nobody knows quite what happened. This, of course, is way before the days of the black box on on board, but witnesses, witnesses there in the Bedford area spoke to, of course at night, that the sound of the engine, the engine sounded fine, but it sounded way too low. And it wasn't circling. It was on a straight course into that mountain. 
You could see the fire from 10 miles away. All five men on board were killed instantly in the crash. Those who went up, rescue workers, volunteer fire department guys, some still to this day will never go back because of the things they saw that night. There. Now again, we don't know quite what happened, but this is a pretty fair guess. They were lost and didn't know. which demands a question that we ask of ourselves this morning. How can you know if you're lost and don't know? Some questions you can ask. Some heart diagnostic questions. Let me throw a few at you. How do you respond to criticism? How do you respond? Does it sting? Or does it completely undo you? Do the words of another mortal human being so threaten your worth that you come apart at the seams? If so, that's a trouble sign of you relying on your own righteousness instead of being secure in Christ. How do you respond to when, when things don't go your way? Um, are you disappointed? Or are you just absolutely crushed? You may have, bought, if, you, if you're crushed, you may have bought into this kind of equation. And sadly, there's a lot of teaching like this in the church. Live a good life, get a good life. Well, what happens then when suffering comes? Because doesn't God owe you? Because you lived a good life? Oh, and now you didn't get that, so now where are you? Angry, bitter, maybe even turning on the verge of turning away from him. That's a trouble sign, depending on how you handle disappointment. There are certainly some others. I mean, I could speak to, um, oh, do you get along well with others? Are you a humble person, a proud person? That's indicative of something. Well, the long list goes on and on, and we can talk about that if you'd like to. But my point being this, those are all danger signs of the infection of self-righteousness in your heart. And the deal is we all need to repent of that kind of stuff and keep repenting every day, every day, turning away from those things and to Jesus. A lifestyle of repentance for the kingdom has come. Now, I realize... Because I know my own heart. I don't think I'm terribly unique here. I realize there's tremendous pushback, a visceral pushback in what I've been saying. Better what John is saying. What the Spirit is saying through John. I realize there's a, there's a pushback down deep within us. We don't like this. We don't want to receive this. We're not receptive to this. And some of that's because of pride. I need to change? I need to change? Some of it. Some of it's also just frankly that we hate authority. We hate yielding. We hate giving ourselves to the rule of, of another over us. But, but let me ask you something, just in closing. Whose rule are we talking about here? Are we talking really about a tyrannical dictator who cares nothing for our good? 
Is that really who we're talking about when we're talking about when John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Are we talking about giving ourselves, yielding ourselves to the rule and the reign of a tyrannical dictator who cares nothing for our good? I saw in the news a couple days ago an update about our friend in North Korea, Kim Jong-un, who in recent weeks, intelligence sources tell us, had his defense minister executed. You don't want to take a job in the cabinet with the supreme leader of North Korea. It's not just not job security, it's not life security. Um, so he has his defense minister executed. You know how? Oh, not by firing squad. By anti-aircraft artillery. Yeah, seriously. At a military school in front of hundreds of people. You know why the supreme leader did this? Because... His defense minister blew an arms deal with the Russians and fell asleep in a key cabinet meeting. And so the supreme leader was determined to send a message, it would seem, to his underlings to kill this man and destroy every trace of him. Is that who we're being called? A man like that? a king like that, a ruler like that, to submit ourselves? Of course not! This is the rightful king, a compassionate shepherd who knows you because he made you, who determined before the beginning of time to come and save you despite your folly. And John's message here is simply this. He has come. He has come and he has come for you. Turn to Him. Keep turning to Him. Turn to Him. And turn to Him today. Let's pray. Lord, this is the message that we need to hear and keep hearing. And yet it is an impossible one to hear without Your enabling. Our hearts are bent away from You. All of us. Our necks are stiff. Our hearts are hard. We are convinced of our goodness and righteousness and all too easily persuaded of it. Even despite all the evidence to the contrary. You need to hear this message. You are the king, the mighty matchless one, the all-wise and compassionate one. We are meant to align ourselves under your rule, but we can't. We ask that you would grant what you command. We ask that you give us the grace of repentance. Lord, some here this morning may well need this for the first time. Please grant it. And the rest of us need to learn it as a lifestyle. And so we ask that you would give us the grace to, to look to you, to learn from you, to lean upon you, and not ourselves. Only you, Jesus. Amen.